This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Duty-Free Art, Art in the Age of Planetary Civil War, by Hito Styrol. What is the function of art in the era of digital globalization? How can one think of art institutions in an age defined by planetary civil war, growing inequality, and proprietary digital technology? The boundaries of such institutions have grown fuzzy. They extend from a region where the audience is pumped for tweets to a future of neuro-curating in which paintings surveil their audience via facial recognition and eye-tracking to assess their popularity and to scan for suspicious activity. In Duty-Free Art, filmmaker and writer Hito Styrol wonders how we can appreciate or even make art in the present age. What can we do when arms manufacturers sponsor museums and some of the world's most valuable artworks are used as currency in a global futures market detached from productive work? Can we distinguish between information, fake news, and the digital white noise that bombards our everyday lives? Exploring subjects as diverse as video games, WikiLeaks files, the proliferation of free ports, and political actions, she exposes the paradoxes within globalization, political economies, visual culture, and the status of art production. Duty-Free Art, Art in the Age of Planetary Civil War, by Hito Styrol, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Conservatives have long blamed poverty and its glaringly racist disproportionality on what they describe as pathological family dysfunction amongst the poor, particularly amongst black poor people who they represent as breeding criminality and unemployability. Children passively haunted by absent fathers and actively harmed by welfare-dependent mothers. The upshot is a politics that demonizes and disciplines poor black women's reproduction and that legitimates and exculpates the brutal and racist economic system that exploits them and that exploits most people. It's a politics of representation and exploitation that dates back to slavery and that has shaped everything from an early birth control movement guided by eugenics to, in more recent decades, welfare deform and mass incarceration. 20 years ago, Dorothy Roberts took this all on in her pivotal book, Killing the Black Body, Race, Reproduction, and the Meaning of Liberty. A new edition has been issued on the occasion of its anniversary, and today, Dorothy Roberts is my guest. We're going to discuss the historical periods analyzed in her book and how it might help us understand what has transpired since in the years marked by neoliberalism and mass incarceration that followed its publication. Before we get rolling, we met our year-end goal of 700 supporters on Patreon.com. So first, thank you for making this show possible. We truly can't do it without you. But we are still raising more money. 
to not only put this show on solid financial footing, but also to ultimately invest funds in improving our guests' audio. In other words, if you listen to this show, we still need your support. You can make that happen at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Thanks, and here is my interview with Dorothy Roberts, George A. Weiss University Professor of Law and Sociology at the University of Pennsylvania. Along with Killing the Black Body, she is the author of many other works, including Shattered Bonds, The Color of Child Welfare, and Fatal Invention, How Science, Politics, and Big Business Recreate Race in the 21st Century. Dorothy Roberts, welcome to The Dig. Thank you, Dan. I want to start where your book starts, which is looking at how the American South's slave agricultural economy made enslaved women's reproduction the source of profit-generating private property in the form of new slaves. And I want to start there because, as you write, the brutal domination of slave women's procreation laid the foundation for centuries of reproductive regulation that continues today. It seems obvious now that I've read your book, but I really hadn't thought of slavery before as so centered on controlling women's reproduction. Can you lay out your your analysis of this period? The production of enslaved children depended on Black women's childbearing. And so it was in slaveholders' economic interest, more than their economic interest, it was essential to the way in which they generated wealth by enslaving human beings to have control over Black women's childbearing. Black women's reproductive labor was as profitable as the labor in the fields. It it produced the laborers, the forced laborers. And so it, it really doesn't make sense to think about reproduction and reproductive politics and reproductive freedom in the United States without grounding it in this very brutal, fundamental, foundational way in which the control of black women's reproductive bodies was essential to the economy of the colonies and and then the United States. You know, since I wrote Killing the Black Body, I've thought even more, in fact, it impresses me more and more every time I write or think or speak about this, how the way in which race was defined Find as a biological category that was reproduced through procreation was so essential to this myth of biological race, which is the foundation of racism and white supremacy. So, it, you know, in Killing the Black Body, I was describing how essential control of Black women's procreation, or at least the, the attempted control of it, the state regulation of it, the, the, the ownership of, literal ownership of black women's bodies was important to how 
we think about the very meaning of reproductive freedom in the United States. But I wasn't writing at that time so much about how the very concept of race itself is reliant on an idea of procreation, of inheriting this supposed biological status and defining black women as the reproducers of children who could be enslaved. It was a very fundamental way of describing racism and white supremacy as the natural product of procreation, as opposed to a political structure of oppression. And an important part of that is defining race as a biological category that can be inherited as opposed to an invented category to govern people and to define certain people as masters and others as capable of being enslaved as less than human. So uh, the the way in which black women's procreation was controlled was treated as the property of and prerogative of white slaveholders, but also the way in which it helped to define race as a biological category, all of that together was the first step in making black women's procreation be the false explanation for racial inequality as opposed to an imposed system of oppression. One of the the instances that really stuck out in terms of how race was was reproduced through women giving birth, literally, was that black women birthed black slaves while white women birthed white free people, which it seems is the, the origin of this notion that a black male having sex with a white woman is so catastrophic, even as as white male slave owners were rampantly raping black slave women. And then that, of course, becomes this focal point for violence against black men long after slavery is abolished. So I think it's important to emphasize that that race isn't actually inherited or procreated. It's a, a fallacy that was invented by white slaveholders in order to support their racism and their white supremacy. But the idea that black women give birth to enslavable children, that the children of black women are have the status of their mothers. Uh, that was one of the very first laws passed in the colony of Virginia when the legislators there had to figure out what is the status of children born to enslaved African women but fathered by white men. It's it's one of the most powerful examples, I think, of how race was invented because 
there was no natural answer to that question. And so for political reasons, they decided that the children of black women, even if they were fathered by white men through rape, would be black, would have the status of their mothers, could be enslaved, uh, even you know by their very fathers, who were considered a different kind of human being from these children. A corollary of that is the definition of whiteness, that whiteness is a signifies a purity, that white people have a superior status that must be kept pure, and that only people who can claim pure whiteness are really white. Uh, and you know, if you have any amount of African ancestry, you can't be white. And that also required an oppressive, patriarchal, racist form of government that punished people who so you know contaminated under this thinking the white race. Uh, that that meant the policing of white women so that they only produced pure white children who were the children entitled to the status, the superior status. And it also meant the brutal violence against black men who were even accused, even suspected of having sex with white women. Or and, in Emmett Till's case, even just allegedly whistling. Exactly. Just suggesting that they might be thinking about sex with a white woman. Uh, yes, many, many black men have been killed and imprisoned for attempting rape because they just were near a white woman or made some indication that they might be thinking about having sex with a white woman. So these boundaries have been brutally policed by state state or state involved private violence in order to maintain this caste system where people who are identified as white maintain power, have entitlement to power, and everyone else is subject to domination. It seems as though the regulation of, of black women's reproduction and the criminalization of, of black men then are really so deeply intertwined from the get-go and that it stems from this the slave system, this impossible category of the the child born to a white woman fathered by a black man, this impossible category that sort of exposed the 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 lie of biological racism that this system of of intergenerational chattel slavery made made possible or or depended upon yeah that that's true it if you think about the biological concept of race the biological concept of race was invented to support white supremacy in a capitalist system in which black people were forced to work and to produce more enslaved children and if and yet 
most Americans still believe that it is a natural category that you're born into and that's passed down through, now we say genetics, it used to be through the blood, uh, this, but these same notions of inheriting a biological identity that obscures the politics of racism and white supremacy and that permits huge, horrendous amounts of violence in order to maintain these categories that are clearly false. You know, the, to maintain the idea of biological race requires this violent enforcement of categories, white purity, the inferior status of people who have any drop of African ancestry. It's, it's so clearly political, but to maintain the pretense, which is essential to governing people according to race, it requires these atrocious amounts of brutality that then are whose impact is hidden from many people. It's obscured because they buy into the idea that human beings are naturally divided into these biological categories. It, it's, it's almost, I, you know, when, when I worked on my book, Fatal Invention, I, I came to see that it's like a, a faith that people have. There's absolutely no scientific evidence for it, but people believe it because they're so invested in their status being dependent on these notions and white, you know, white liberals as well as conservative people believe it because I think because they don't want to face the reality that their privileged status is held up through violence. And so many don't even notice the violence that occurs. You know, we, we live in such a violent society where the state incarcerates millions of people. It, it, it puts people in prison because they're too poor to pay for bail without any adjudication of charges against them. Thousands upon thousands of people, children locked up in solitary confinement, uh, police, killing unarmed children and women and men, poverty at astounding rates, the, black, the infant mortality rate going up, the maternal mortality rate going up, a maternal mortality rate in the Mississippi Delta that's higher for black women than in Rwanda and Kenya. You know, I could go on and on and on about the amount of violence inflicted on people by the state that many people don't even see as violence at all. They see it as normal. And I, the only explanation I can find for why they see it as normal is that they bought into this very powerful lie that human beings are naturally divided into races and some races are predisposed to these horrible consequences. And again, this goes all the way back to where we started the conversation to the idea that black women's wombs 
produce the disadvantaged status of their children and that it's not a racist, white supremacist, capitalist, patriarchal state that's doing it. It's just the natural result of black procreation. The the operation of what the Field Sisters call racecraft that that normalizes all these monstrous injustices by everything being premised on the notion that there is biological or or bi- something equivalent to biological race, and then things like the disproportionate mass incarceration of black people being a product of that of that race rather than of racism and the systems that that depend upon racism to exist. Yes, that's right. And there are whole industries of research that use race as a variable to explain inequality. It's it's embedded in social science research. It's embedded in biological research. It's embedded in the practice of medicine. And I would just emphasize again the way in which the idea that it's black women who are reproducing these negative consequences for their children, how, how that is pivotal to maintaining the, the, this operation of biological race as a disguise for state violence and institutionalized racism and white supremacy. One of the most bizarre things about that that whole disguising act that I want to ask you about is you make it very clear that the destruction and management of, of black families by slaveholding whites was a centerpiece of the racism-enabled economic system of slavery. But today, the the very conservatives who are in so many ways the political heirs to the slaveocracy are and have are obsessed and have been obsessed for a very long time with what they characterize as the pathological abnormality of black families and another remarkable thing that conservatives argue is that the very descendants of people who were forced to this country in chains to labor as slaves are then stereotyped as being lazy and unwilling to work. Can you talk a little about how this twisted inversion of the reality of the history of black labor and reproductive exploitation becomes so politically salient? Along with race and and the idea that human beings are naturally divided into races is an idea a notion of a hierarchy. So when European typologists first began sketching out this chain of human beings divided into types called races, they always mapped it out onto a hierarchy with Europeans at the top and Africans at the bottom. And along with those that their place in the hierarchy came certain assumed traits. You know, there, there really is little reason to divide people by race unless there are traits that go along with each race. Otherwise, how could you tell them apart? And the traits 
were always defined in this opposition of positive traits for white people and then their negative opposite for black people. So white people were supposed to be industrious and black people lazy and white people were supposed to be beautiful and black people ugly and white people were supposed to be intelligent and black people stupid, you know, and on and on and on. Also moral traits as well with white people supposedly having high integrity and black people prone to criminality. That that opposition of positive and negative traits continues to operate in U.S. culture to this day and to explain away the disadvantaged status of black people as just the product of their traits, whether it's traits that are biological or genetic, which we're seeing a resurgence of interest in identifying those today, or whether they're cultural traits, which sociologists and other social scientists have described as if they're so pervasive that they almost sound like genetic traits because they seem to be just part of what it means to to belong to a certain race. And it operates in a very powerful way to, again, to obscure the structural forces that have generation after generation after generation put barriers in front of Black people being able to participate fully in U.S. the U.S. political economy, even though their labor uh, has helped since the time of slavery to build that economy. They emphasize the stereotypes that are just the most surreal when actually compared to the historical record, that the people who had their families forcefully broken apart are the ones that don't care about families, and that the people who were doing all of the hard, forced labor in the fields were the, are the ones who don't want to work. And it doesn't seem like an accident that it's the most absurd, patently absurd stereotypes that have so much currency. They defy reality. They absolutely defy reality. They defy even an elementary school notion, uh, understanding of U.S. history. And yet they still work to convince many white Americans that they their entitlements and privileges and status is justified. Uh, you know, just a few years ago, Nicholas Wade, who was a chief science journalist for the New York Times for many years, wrote a book about race and genetics, A Troublesome Inheritance, in which he claims that the human species evolved into three principal races, whites, blacks, and Asians, and that not only does each race have its distinctive physical traits, but they evolved to have different social values. Oh, God. And, yes, and that is why each race is predisposed to certain social institutions. 
And he writes the same stereotypes that white people are value freedom and liberty and are creative. And that's why they produce democracies. And he says that Asians are conformists and that's why they favor autocratic states and Africans are tribal and violent. And that's why the continent of Africa is in chaos. And he argues that this shows that it's pointless to spend lots of government aid on Africa and because despite all the efforts that Europeans <laughs> have made to help Africa, uh, it Africans inevitably resort to tribal warfare. Now, he conveniently leaves out of the book all the violence of slavery and colonialism and imperialism that Europeans imposed around the world. He, he, he just leaves that out. Uh, and it's completely ahistorical. It's completely full of racist stereotypes. And yet the book was published, I think, in 2014 or 2015. Uh, and for a moment was a bestseller on Amazon uh, for world history as well as genetics. These ideas are completely ludicrous, and yet I, I would say most Americans, most white Americans believe some form of, of these stereotypes and use them to erase the violent history of white supremacy and erase as well the current ways in which racism and capitalism and and white supremacy are propped up by state violence. Before we move on to um, later periods discussed in your book, I want to ask you about your discussion of the paradox of, of slave women both reproducing slavery in the sense that at least after the abolition of the slave trade, slavery could only be continued if black slave women had children, but that at the same time, black slave women having children also was what reproduced the black community in the United States. And I'm hoping to to interview Nancy Fraser to discuss this more, but I'm wondering what you think that this dynamic under slavery, to what extent this offers a window a broad, into broader issues of how social reproduction functions under capitalism, this tension between reproduction ultimately being an unalienable, even in the most alienating conditions, thing that people do to reproduce society and community, and the way that that's always, though, implicated in these broader contexts of, of exploitation. The paradox that black women's childbearing was essential to maintaining the slave economy and that it also produced black life and the continuation of 
black families and communities is part of the reason why it's been so pivotal to the U.S. state to control, to try to control black women's childbearing and to devalue it, uh, to, to devalue the worth, the, the inherent human worth of black people so that black people could be used to work, to profit white slaveholders, and even after emancipation could be used through institutions like the convict lease system or other forms of sharecropping, uh, the hiring at poverty wages of black women domestics, uh, the Black people's labor could profit America while Black people could be devalued as human beings. And that has been an imperative of white supremacy for centuries. And we see it in contemporary policies that continue to devalue and degrade Black women's childbearing through many of the the ways that I described in Killing the Black Body through the prosecution of black women for giving birth, through the foster care system that deals with the struggles of black families by taking their children away and placing them in state custody, uh, by the juvenile justice system that detains and incarcerates disproportionate numbers of black children uh, through the regulation of black women's childbearing while uh, the women are incarcerated by coerced sterilization of black women in huge government-sponsored programs. All these ways that Black women's childbearing has been devalued so that they and the children they produce are treated as less than human, even while their labor at certain times of U.S. history has been valuable to creating the capitalist and maintaining the capitalist economy. I think a, a lot of, of of people tend to think of American racism as being mostly a, a a story that comes out of the South, but your book traces the concern over black reproduction after slavery uh, to the early birth control movement's origins with with Margaret Sanger, and you describe how it began as a radical feminist movement but became a eugenical one focused on regulating the reproduction of, of poor people, immigrants, and black people. And I think your argument is that Margaret Sanger was definitely a eugenicist but not exactly a racist in the sense that her she had a desire to cull the ranks of people she deemed lowly blacks, a desire that was shared by some black elites. Can you explain a bit about the movement's 
eugenic turn and how that shaped the politics of birth control and reproductive rights, including amongst black Americans? Because I think that'll help set the stage for talking more about about the 90s and what what happened since to really understand uh, just how pervasive eugenics was in American politics as a whole in the early 20th century and but and very much in the birth control movement in particular. Eugenics was mainstream science in the United States in the 1920s and 30s, uh, and it continued to be mainstream science that was taught in high schools and universities and also strongly influenced government policies at the federal level and local level until World War II when it was officially discredited because of the Nazi extermination of Jews and others under eugenicist theories. Theories, by the way, and practices that the Nazis borrowed from the United States. Yeah, Hitler was a big, was a explicitly big fan of of American race science. Yes, and and there was a lot of correspondence between eugenicists in the United States and Nazis in Germany, and also the U.S. had passed eugenic sterilization laws in the U.S. prior to the Nazis passing them. So uh, this was not only accepted science, but also science that was the basis of immigration policy, sterilization, public health policy in the U.S. And of course, Oliver Wendell Holmes explicitly approved it in Buck v. Bell, which upheld the eugenic sterilization law in Virginia. So when Margaret Sanger and other birth control advocates began their campaign in the early 20th century to provide birth control to women so that they could have greater autonomy over their lives, greater liberty, greater ability to participate to be in in the national economy to be freed from constant childbearing, a feminist mission, it was going on at the same time that eugenicists were advocating for state control of of reproduction in order to improve the genetic stock of the country. So this convergence of birth control to liberate women and birth control as a form of state population control profoundly shaped the way in which Americans think about birth control. It it has always had this dual potential to be liberating for people who are deemed worthy of having autonomy over their childbearing and used to try to control and devalue and limit and punish people whose childbearing 
is deemed unworthy. And black women have fallen into that latter category. Uh, they've been put into that latter category of being people who whose procreation is dangerous, whose procreation should be subject to state regulation. And this really shapes reproductive policy over the the long haul. One one thing that you wrote about that I think is um, far too little remembered is this widespread sterilization abuse that extends into the 1970s, where just huge numbers of poor women, um, particularly black women, but also in a shockingly huge number of women in Puerto Rico, are coerced into being sterilized. Can you tell me a little bit about that history and the the struggle against it and and why it's not really remembered today? From the time of the eugenics era to the 1970s and really to today, the U.S. government has been involved in programs that seek to deter the procreation of women of color, including programs that coerced or even forced women to be sterilized uh, in government programs that provided health care for black women across the United States, especially in the South, but also in northern cities. Doctors would refuse to perform certain types of health care services like deliveries or abortions unless women who were reliant on public assistance signed consent forms. There were also cases where doctors would sterilize women even without their knowledge. Uh, One of the cases that ended up in a lawsuit, a class action lawsuit in the 70s, was the Ralph sisters, uh, two sisters in Alabama, whose mother signed the consent form with an X because she was illiterate. Uh, And these young teenagers were sterilized without anyone's consent. That became the basis of a major class action lawsuit that revealed that hundreds of thousands of women had been coercively sterilized under these programs. Uh, you mentioned Puerto Rico. In, on the island of Puerto Rico, huge proportions, I've read anywhere from a quarter to maybe even a third of women, childbearing women on the island at one point had been sterilized in government programs that coerced these women to undergo sterilization operations. And in Los Angeles, at the Los Angeles County Hospital, there was another campaign in the 70s to sterilize women of Mexican origin. And that also led to a lawsuit. Uh, These are all cases where Latina and black women have organized 
to bring these cases to public attention, have brought lawsuits, and I've also advocated for federal regulations that would at least de decrease the opportunity for doctors to pressure women to be sterilized. So a group of women of color advocating for a response by the federal government to this, these abusive practices were able to push for the passage of federal regulations that make it harder for doctors to coerce patients, their patients into uh, being sterilized. These regulations, by the way, are under scrutiny, if not attack right now, because some doctors are claiming that they're no longer needed and that, in fact, the regulations are a form of discrimination against women on Medicaid who can't get sterilizations unless the regulations are met. Uh, but the claim that they're no longer needed is not true because we still have evidence to this day of federal or state programs, government programs, abusing women, vulnerable women of color by coercing them in one way or another to be sterilized. An example of this is a program in the California state prisons that was uncovered a few years ago that found that uh, the report, the investigation found that about 150 women incarcerated in California had been sterilized uh, while incarcerated. And many reported that they were forced to sign forms or that they were not even aware that they had been sterilized. Uh, I think there's a strong argument that it is unethical to sterilize an incarcerated person. And also, at any rate, the doctors fail to get the required ethical approval for these sterilizations. So they were unauthorized, uh, and I would say they were unethical and abusive violations of the human rights of these women locked up in California. So sterilization abuse is still a problem in the United States, and it goes back to this convergence of the use of birth control in different ways, depending on how the people affected are valued in our society. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is How Will Capitalism End? Essays on a Failing System by Wolfgang Streak. 
which is out now in paperback. The provocative political thinker asks if it will be with a bang or a whimper. After years of ill health, capitalism is now in a critical condition. Growth has given way to stagnation. Inequality is leading to instability. And confidence in the money economy has all but evaporated. In How Will Capitalism End?, the acclaimed analyst of contemporary politics and economics, Wolfgang Streeck, argues that the world is about to change. The marriage between democracy and capitalism, ill-suited partners brought together in the shadow of World War II, is coming to an end. The regulatory institutions that once restrained the financial sector's excesses have collapsed. And after the final victory of capitalism at the end of the Cold War, there is no political agency capable of rolling back the liberalization of the markets. Ours has become a world defined by declining growth, oligarchic rule, a shrinking public sphere, institutional corruption, and international anarchy. And no cure to these ills is at hand. How Will Capitalism End? Essays on a Failing System by Wolfgang Streeck. Out now in paperback from Verso Books. This eugenical thinking really comes to the fore again in full force during the welfare reform era in the 1990s. There's a hysteria over teen pregnancy, even though it had been declining for years, and a forgotten chapter in in American history that was a huge issue when you were writing the book in the 1990s was Norplant, which is a long-acting contraceptive implanted in women's arms. And at the time, it became for many a panacea that could stop poor black women from having poor black babies. You write about one infamous editorial in the Philadelphia Inquirer that called for women on welfare to be incentivized to have Norplant implanted. Um, this editorial wrote that, quote, the main reason more black children are living in poverty is that the people having the most children are the ones least capable of supporting them. But it was also people like Marion Barry, the black mayor of D.C., um, who called for it to be mandatory. You can have as many babies as you want, he said. But when you start asking the government to take care of them, the government now ought to have some control over you. Tell me about this Norplant moment and how it fit into a rising call to restrict poor black women's reproductive freedom and more generally their right to economic survival via welfare. Right. It's important to remember that the 1990s was the buildup to welfare restructuring. Uh, the law passed by Congress in 1996 and signed by President Bill Clinton that abolished the federal entitlement to welfare. That move had been building up at least since the Reagan administration. Uh, it was under the Reagan administration that the black welfare queen image started in circulation. The myth that black mothers had babies just to get 
a welfare check and that they then wasted the money on themselves rather than caring for their children, combining all sorts of negative stereotypes about black women having babies recklessly, not caring for their children, being untrustworthy and devious, all of those stereotypes wrapped up in a very powerful image that helped to fuel the popular support for ending welfare as we knew it, meaning as a federal guarantee, as opposed to what it is now, a basically a behavior modification system to try to control the childbearing and marital decisions of of women who rely on public assistance to take care of their children. And so there was this combination of wanting to end government assistance for mothers taking care of children with the notion that black women's reproduction should be controlled. Uh, the, the quotes from the Philadelphia Inquirer, which is a, a very good example of eugenicist thinking, this, this same idea I've been talking about, that it is black women's procreation that produces the, the disadvantaged status of their children. So black, the reason why black children most black children are born into poverty and the inquiry was responding to a report that found that you know, is because their mothers are poor and having too many children. And so therefore the solution isn't to end the structural reasons for poverty. The solution is to keep black women who are poor from having more children. And Norplant came in as a, convenient method of controlling the reproduction of these women because it is provider, not woman controlled. Once it's placed in your arm through a minor surgical procedure, the only way to get it out safely is through another minor surgical procedure. And so women could not stop using it without having to go to a most likely government, you know, Medicaid paid doctor to get it out. And so this was a form of temporary sterilization that many saw as very useful for regulating the reproductive decisions of cash poor black mothers and keeping them from having so many children. Uh, the uh, other quote by Mayor Barry, where this idea that if the government is supporting your childbearing decisions by helping to fund the care of your children, then the government should have control over it. This idea is strongly embedded in U.S. constitutional jurisprudence that there is no affirmative right to 
government support for your welfare, and that if you need government public assistance, that means that the government then has the right to control you. You know, which is which is embedded in this long-standing idea that dates back to white settlement in the U.S. That political liberty is founded in in economic independence, so that if you're if you are dependent upon the government, then the government then you don't have the right to to privacy to any of those sorts of things. Exactly, you have no you have no liberty, you have no privacy because that that. You only get that if you're able to rely only on yourself. But we we can see here how notions of capitalism and neoliberalism, that, that our freedoms depend on our ability to make it in the market, are supported by racism and the notion that the reason why Black people and other people of color are disadvantaged isn't because of white supremacy and institutions that maintain white supremacy. It's because they simply don't have the characteristics that allow them to compete in the market. And it goes back to the very notion of biological race and the idea that white people have inherited superior traits that enable them to compete in the market. And black people and other people of color haven't. And that's why they're in the disadvantaged status they're in, not because of institutionalized racism, but because of their predisposition to laziness and lack of intelligence and criminality. And so we have this entangled set of ideologies and practices and institutions that rely on the, the the idea that the market is fair and that our liberties rely on being able to participate in this fair market. And those who fail to do so, who don't succeed, it's because of their innate traits that prevent them from doing so. And therefore, it is, there's no need for social change. There's no need to protest against the state of inequality. It is rooted in nature. And race, the idea of race, is what permits Americans, even those hurt by this, <laughs> white Americans who are hurt by this idea that you have no human right to dignity and liberty and freedom and 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 well-being unless you could see, succeed in the market even those harmed by it are willing to subscribe to it because they get the benefit of being white in a racist society and all of those those ways of thinking prop each other up and they all pivot around the punishment of black women's childbearing and the the lie that black women produce the disadvantage of their uh, disadvantages of their children that they produce all the inequalities therefore the solution is implant them with norplant 
don't join together for social change. And we're we're still seeing this today recently in terms of the the racialized class po- politics of Obamacare repeal and also recent conservative moves to attempt to make it so that Medicaid has a work requirement um, or that states at least can impose one and Trump potentially giving states the power to require drug testing and stricter work requirements for food stamps. And Trump recently said, people are taking advantage of the system and then other people aren't receiving what they really need to live. And we think it's very unfair to them. Paul Ryan said, we have a welfare system that's basically trapping people in poverty and effectively paying poor people not to work. We've got to work on that. It's remarkable how little the rhetoric has changed in two decades and that with Trump and and Paul Ryan, that racism continues to safeguard this very anti-poor person class project so that even white welfare recipients might very well still associate welfare with the image of the unworthy, lazy black welfare recipient and thus be willing to sign on to a political project that is directly aimed against them as well. How else do you explain why a working class or cash poor white person would support an administration that is so blatantly, so blatantly interested only in making the very wealthy more wealthy, whose every policy is against their interests. But it follows the same pathological thinking that Du Bois talked about, the psychological wage of whiteness, that it's still important to be able for many white people to distinguish themselves from black people and to hold on to these stereotypes that black people are the cause of the country's problems and not wanting to associate with change that might improve the status of blacks. It's, it's worth it then to them to have a worsening worsening economic status, worsening health, worsening level of freedom in order to maintain the distinction of white privilege. It it seems like the interaction of the the economic project and the the racist project, it does it does a lot of magic because on the one hand the, the image of the black welfare mother provides people with an economic frame to express their racism or to, to say racist things without invoking the N-word or even mentioning black people as such because you say welfare mom and the, right. and, and the image is in someone's head. They don't have to – they have plausible deniability that they didn't mean right. black women. But then at yeah. the same time, it's a racist way – to talk about economics that obscures the the class war underway and that, as we were just discussing, wins over white workers to a war against their own vital interests. So it, it seems like it performs this, this, this bi- multi-directional representational magic. 
oh, it's it's diabolically brilliant. It, <laughs> it, it works. I, it works so that people don't even see the reality before their eyes, and it also is a way of keeping people from joining together to fight the minority elite that are oppressing all of them. There's no question that if white working class and cash poor people joined with people of color who are cash poor and working class, that everyone's welfare would improve. Uh, if we ended these policing policies that, that we've been talking about, whether we're talking about the prison system, the foster care system, the welfare system, you know, the economic system more broadly, the tax system that is now about to become even more lopsided and beneficial for the very, very, very rich, uh, all of that would improve with a movement of the majority of people who would benefit from it. And so this, this race has worked so magically to prevent that uh, from the very beginning of this nation when white Landowners invented and, and, and cemented these racial distinctions in order to prevent any kind of solidarity between the people who would benefit from change. Like white, white indentured servants. Absolutely. And enslaved Africans. Another piece of history that I think really elucidates this is the history of, of welfare itself. As you write, black mothers became the face of welfare uh, when it was demonized, but for much of its history, they'd been systematically excluded from it. And it was only as black women entered the roles as a result of the welfare rights movement that it became demonized. And you write that it was that it that it was a shift from the image of the the white widow to the image of the immoral black welfare queen. And that welfare, when it was first enacted, was initially about paternalistically disciplining immigrant women to assimilate to dominant white culture. But it excluded black women who, unlike white women, were always expected to work outside the home, as as well as inside the home, obviously. Absolutely. The New Deal included programs that benefited single mothers. And even prior to that New Deal era, there were programs that benefited widows, but they were white women. Uh, and we could the same thing for the child welfare system. The child welfare system until the 1960s predominantly benefited white children and excluded black children who were more likely to be placed in some form of prison than to get the benefit of a benevolent uh, child welfare 
institution. And so as black people advocated for rights to be extended, welfare rights, both in terms of public assistance for mothers uh, and also uh, state child welfare systems to be extended to blacks, the, although paternalistic, but still more generous and less stigmatized programs changed radically. So you saw at the same time that welfare benefits shrunk, were stigmatized, there were more and more behavior modification type of regulations attending to them. And eventually, as we've discussed, it was abolished altogether in the entitlement in 1996, based largely on this image of the black welfare queen who was cheating taxpayers. At the same time, we saw a shift in the child welfare system from giving aid to intact families in order to address child maltreatment related to poverty, it shifted to far more money being spent on foster care that removed children from their families and placed them in substitute care and for many eventually led to the termination of parental rights. So for black children, unlike white children, White children have received primarily aid in their homes. For black children, the primary form of state child welfare assistance was taking them away from their families and placing them in foster care. We saw this huge skyrocketing of the foster care population and money spent on foster care as opposed to being spent on family preservation programs. Very parallel development uh, that you know, again, that makes it less likely that you're going to see a strong movement by mothers uh, across racial lines and across economic lines to come together and de demand a radically different form of state support for children, a different form of child welfare that doesn't rely on punitive measures that the threat of taking children away and placing them in state custody and instead generously supports families. So the, 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 the shift in the philosophy of welfare and child welfare as more and more black people are included is serves not only to hurt black people, and it did, you know, it did especially hurt black people who are the targets of these punitive stigmatized programs. But it also works to stymie radical change in the basic philosophy that we have in the United States, that there's something wrong with the government supporting people. Another big part of this story that you talk about in the 90s is this the iconic crack baby yeah it was an issue where the the politics of of welfare deform and mass incarceration really intersected in the at the black mother who is seen as birthing drug damaged babies 
who are destined to become criminals on the taxpayer dime. And women were being criminally charged after testing positive for drugs, after giving birth, and having their children removed. And this seems like a really important moment in understanding both the destruction of the welfare system and the rise of the mass incarceration in the carceral state, and not just the carceral state in terms of prisons themselves, but as you've written about more recently, the prisons beyond the prisons, the the child protective services, the family separation, all of the 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 discipline and surveillance that goes along outside of the prison and uh, the, that extends to the whole family. Transformation of a public health problem, uh, substance abuse during pregnancy into a crime really does show this convergence of reproductive control and prisons and carceral approaches to the struggles of families in this country. And so instead of treating drug problems as a health problem that requires government support by targeting black mothers and turning their health issue into a pathology that they are inflicting on their children, it was possible to make this a criminal matter instead of a public health matter. And that was fueled by longstanding stereotypes, which we've discussed about black mothers, that their wombs are dangerous for their children, that they don't care for their children, and that they pass down through their childbearing these negative antisocial traits from themselves to their children. All of that was bound up in the stereotype of the pregnant black crack addict who was supposed to be more concerned about her crack habit than her baby who traded sex for crack and that's how she became pregnant. And also there was this idea which was touted by some health professionals that crack actually destroyed the maternal instinct in the bodies of black women. And of course, then there was the baby that they supposedly created, the crack baby, who was supposed to not only suffer from medical problems, physical health problems, but also its exposure to crack was supposed to destroy its his or her social consciousness so that they were predicted to become criminals and drug dependents as well. Super predators in the in the making. Predators. Exactly. And that image, that continued devaluation in a new form of black women's childbearing supported a dramatic change in drug policy regarding children born to substance using mothers. Uh, It became a crime. It became a reason to lock women up 
to treat them with extreme brutality and to extend then the carceral state into the context of public health. It, it covers medicine and, and health care. It covers child welfare. It covers welfare as well as what are considered crimes. It, it's a, a, a way of a punitive way of taking attention from institutionalized inequality, whether we're talking about poverty or racism or sexism, and putting the blame instead on black mothers and their dangerous childbearing. It seems like another another instance where this spectacular punishment and, and demonization of of black women ultimately legitimates systems that 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 harm broad swaths of people because we're seeing it seems like a, similar things going on with the opioid crisis a drug crisis that has a white face as we saw with the crack crisis which had a black face in terms of uh children being being taken out of home uh homes a demonization of the the addict mother as as destroying their their child's lives and we're seeing the sort of arguments about the pathology of 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 black families which have been so central to american politics for for so long now appearing in books about white people like hillbilly elegy well there's so much i can say about that but let me let me unpack some parts of it first of all the criminalization of black mothers who smoke crack during pregnancy set up a jurisprudence and a a, a a legal structure of treating black uh, treating women's pregnant women's behavior as fetal crimes. So it was primarily black women who were being prosecuted in the late 1980s, early 1990s, and that allowed for state decision state court decisions that upheld the constitutionality of punishing pregnant women for fetal crimes. That was the foundation for new laws being passed now in, uh, you know, in the 2000s that apply to all women, that uphold the personhood of a fetus and that allow for the criminal punishment of pregnant women who put the fetus at risk. Needless to say, this has huge implications for the right to terminate a pregnancy as well. So the the punishment of black women set the stage for changes in legal meanings and, and laws that can potentially affect any pregnant woman. In addition, because of the stigmatization of black mothers and the way in which the entry of black children and their parents into the child welfare system led to a diminishment of the resources available for struggling families and 
the eventual uh, eventual abolition of and any sense of an entitlement to those resources, we have a structure in place that now affects what resources are available to white children who are being affected by the opioid crisis. So it's not just that white mothers and children who are affected by opioid addiction are being treated like black mothers. They're, they're not, but they're being harmed by institutions that were created as a result of the devaluation of black people. Then there's a way in which many conservatives play on the devaluation of black mothers to threaten white mothers. Uh, this, this is a common theme that if you white woman act like a black woman, here's how we're going to treat you. And so uh, we see this idea that cash poor white mothers who have a drug problem are threatened with similar treatment that black mothers have received. But I have to say, if you compare the way in which the media ha is treating the opioid and heroin epide epidemic in white communities with how it treated the so-called crack epidemic in black communities, it's very different. Overwhelmingly I, more sympathetic. Oh, much more sympathetic. Uh, there is There is not the idea that these, the white women are innately pathological or that they are passing on depraved traits to their children. Uh, they are largely painted as victims of an epidemic with the state coming in and saying, we have to do something to help these families. It's a very different response. It's an inadequate response. It's a punitive response, but there is an empathy and sympathy to it that we did not see at all with Black mothers who were charged with using drugs while pregnant. And you always get these backstories <laughs> now about what it was in that person's life that almost understandably allowed them to slip into addiction. They, they were injured and got yes. legally prescribed Oxycontin and then we're hooked. Yes. Um, so there's this backstory that yes. creates empathy uh, for the reader. Yes, it not only creates empathy for the reader, it presents a completely different explanation for drug addiction and more broadly for social disadvantage. So in the case of black people, there is a biological, if you, if you, if you read the explanations for why black people are supposedly prone to addiction, you see a biological explanation that treats the problem as some innate depravity in black people. Whereas with the current opioid and heroin epidemic, you do not see any indication that white people are genetically or otherwise innately prone to addiction and all the the uh, consequences of it. There is a social explanation 
of why they are in this predicament. And so it, it, it's dramatically different and so striking. And, and it also goes to the very reason why we may be seeing the heroin and opioid epidemic hitting white people harder than black people because doctors believe these myths about biological difference. Doctors believe and that black people are denied black, necessary uh, pain medication. There's there's research into that. Absolutely, doctors believe that black people and 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 still believe many that black people are innately prone to drug addiction. In addition to other false biological myths like black people do not feel pain the same way white people do. Black people's skin is thicker than white people's. Black people have less sensitive nerve endings. These stereotypes that we know, yes, from a number of studies, have led to doctors undertreating black people's pain, including with opioid prescriptions. And that conversely, you know, the opposite view of white people that they are resistant to addiction and therefore it's safer to prescribe them opioid medications. And so the this goes back, we can we can trace back the roots of both the epidemic and the way in which the government has and the media have treated it to the idea that there is a white race that has superior features than the biological black race that is innately less valuable, less prone to positive behavior than whites. And the same sort of ideas that seem to structure how punishment was meted out on, on plantations, even. Thomas Jefferson wrote in his notes on the state of Virginia about his own beliefs of black people being less sensitive to pain, uh, more prone to in being happy. Uh, the, this, these ideas that supported the view that enslaving black people was good for them. And that inflicting corporal punishment on black people not only didn't hurt them as much, but also helped them because it was necessary to force them to work, which supposedly was better for their health and their welfare than being in their supposedly natural lazy state. So many of these notions go back to slavery and it's, it's, it's astounding how they have traveled over the centuries to remain su- surprisingly intact and 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 to have to, to that, that you can see them in our advanced medical practice the same notions that racist doctors like Samuel Cartwright wrote about in the 1850s so this is the 20th anniversary of killing the black body in 1997 your book was making an argument about reproductive freedom 
and it was responding to the narrow focus of the mainstream white affluent-led abortion rights movement. What were you responding to at the time, and how have things changed over the past two decades as abortion rights have come under incredible assault in Republican-led states, unprecedented since, since Roe v. Wade? When I wrote Killing the Black Body, I was responding to the lack of attention by both mainstream reproductive rights organizations, which were led by white women, primarily uh, middle white middle class and affluent women, and also to mainstream civil rights organizations. Both of these types of organizations were not responding to the types of reproductive violations that I was seeing inflicted on Black women and that had been inflicted for centuries on Black women. The focus on abortion, while access to safe abortion is absolutely essential, it's not the only reproductive freedom issue that women face. And Black women were being punished for having children, being sterilized to prevent them from having children. And so there was a, a, an absence of attention to these issues that primarily affected women of color, and also a lack of analysis and attention to the way racism works along with classism and sexism to produce these reproductive, repressive policies. There was, a, there was an idea among some black circles that talking about reproductive rights was a white woman's issue that wasn't, shouldn't be at the forefront of black people's political agenda. And so I wanted to explain that Black women had been violated in ways that were being ignored by these more mainstream groups, and also that Black women had been advocating for reproductive freedom from the very time of slavery to the present, and their leadership was being ignored as well. And how have things changed since? Do you still see that narrow focus of the reproductive rights movement, given that 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 the issue of abortion rights has not decreased in, in importance as it's being dismantled? Or is the movement able to, has it been able to take on this broader conception of, of reproductive freedom that that you articulated 20 years ago? Or have has the movement being placed on into such a defensive posture made that even more difficult for them to do yeah it, it is really hard when there are anti-abortion laws being passed right and left hundreds of them being passed uh, since the time I published killing the black body to fight back against that and think about the broader scope of productive freedom. But that's no excuse. And I think that mainstream reproductive rights organizations 
like Planned Parenthood and NARAL are broadening their view for a couple reasons. One is that it's very hard now to ignore the connection between fetal protection laws that punish pregnant women and anti-abortion laws. Both of them are based on an idea that the fetus is more important than uh, women and that women should be punished for any harm, uh, whether it be uh, some conduct of the pregnant woman or if it's the pregnant woman wanting to terminate the pregnancy. So um, there, it, it, you, you've got to see the connection between the two, and I think these organizations are. The other more important reason is that in the last 20 years, there's been a burgeoning reproductive justice movement led by women of color who have challenged the framework of choice that is the dominant way of thinking about reproductive rights that posits that reproductive rights are based on the ability of an individual woman to make a choice about what she wants to do with her pregnancy uh, or whether she wants to get pregnant or not. That view leaves out all the institutionalized, systemic, societal reasons why many women are unable to make a choice. And it leaves out the way in which regulation of reproduction is a matter of politics, not a matter of individual decision making. And so reproductive justice encompasses the right to have a child or not have a child, but also to parent a child in a safe and nurturing environment. And it attacks the idea that all that rights are about is being free from direct government interference, it also recognizes human rights that deserve protection by the government. And so we advocate against state violence, also demand state resources to support our lives and our communities and our families. So we see the injustice of denying access to birth control and other reproductive health services, but also the injustice of using birth control to punish and stigmatize and destroy populations. So reproductive justice is gaining attention in the United States, even so much so that we're finding there are people who use the term without really understanding <laughs> what it means. <laughs> Um, but it's it is having an impact. It's it's had victories and it's being adopted as a better framework for advocating for social justice uh, than a choice framework that advocates primarily for the most privileged people who have the opportunity to make these choices. I think recent events also demonstrate that there are huge political risks um, for the abortion rights movement if it doesn't seriously take into account the role of race, class, and these broader issues of reproductive freedom. Um, and I'm thinking of the atrocities committed by Dr. Kermit Gosnell in Philadelphia, 
which he committed in his rogue abortion clinic on women who went there precisely because poor women don't have access to affordable and safe abortions. And so they end up turning to him. And that case became, even though it should have been, an example of, of, of why women need reproductive freedom and, and need uh, safe and affordable access to abortion, it was very expertly and powerfully weaponized as anti-abortion propaganda. That's right. So there's both the point you're making that without a reproductive justice framework and without a, a framework that is hin- hinges on social justice, the right can use these cases as anti-abortion cases rather than as cases that show the need for broader access to health care that includes reproductive health services, including abortion services. It also is important to see that a choice framework that just focuses on abortion is is far weaker than a reproductive justice framework that is centered in social justice and recognizes the way in which interlocking systems of oppression deny people reproductive freedom because reproductive justice then can form alliances with other social justice organizations and movements. It's part of a broader movement for a more equitable, free, non-racist, non-sexist society. And there, there is the possibility of bringing in people from many different parts of society and also linking together with environmental justice and anti-racist and anti-state violence, anti-carceral, economic justice, gender justice. I could go on and on. All of these movements are related to reproductive justice. So it is a, a much more powerful way of linking reproductive freedom to human rights and equality more broadly. I just did an interview. The interview I just posted today was um, with Kianga Yamada Taylor on her new book on the Kambahi River Collective Statement. And uh, it reminds me of their classic line, if black women were free, it would mean that everyone else would have to be free since our freedom would necessitate the destruction of all of the systems of oppression. That's, That's absolutely right. You know, I, I, I knew that when I wrote Killing the Black Body 20 years ago, but I understand it even more today. I, I see more, even more clearly how the oppression of black women is pivotal to maintaining a white supremacist, capitalist, patriarchal, neoliberal regime in the United States and how ending the oppression of black people is pivotal to eradicating that form of governance and working toward a world where we are all treated as and live as equal human beings.
Dorothy Roberts, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you so much for this, this wonderful interview and conversation. Dorothy Roberts is, amongst many other things, the author of Killing the Black Body and Fatal Invention. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that the place of women in society could be used to measure the development of society as a whole, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio and find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please leave us a review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners. What also helps put us in touch with new listeners is you telling your friends about the show. So please do that as well. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. And please find us on Patreon.com and make a monthly contribution of $5 or more to keep this operation going. Even a few bucks a month is a big help. Thank you.